Hello and welcome to the Azure Wrap Podcast. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, and we have another wonderful episode for you guys today. Um, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk. Eric, how are you doing today? Fantastic. How are you? How's everyone? We're doing uh, doing fantastic. And we've got two wonderful guests with us today to talk about a very important topic. My uh, first guest is uh, Dr. Guy Weinberg. He's a uh, professor of anesthesiology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago, and he also works at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. Um, Guy, how are you doing today? Everything's cool. Great good, to be good. on board. And then our second guest of, uh, is... Uh, Many of you probably know he was the editor of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine for a long time, really active member and executive committee member of uh, ASRA for many years, uh, Joe Neal from the Virginia Mason Medical Center out in Seattle. Joe, how are you today? It's raining in Seattle, so it's a good day. <laughs> so that means every day is a good day in Seattle. Huh? That's right. <laughs> so uh, before we get to today's topic, I want to remind people that we have a really important event coming up for ASRA. That's the uh, World Congress of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. That's coming up right around the corner, April 19th to the 21st in New York City, United States. And if you guys haven't already registered, you better do it quick because the registrations are filling up fast. They are, uh, we've had the highest enrollment for this conference of any meeting that's ever happened. It's been faster with greater numbers. We have more abstracts at this meeting than any other. Um, there's an incredible amount of sessions. I've looked at the program. It's dizzying how many different sessions there are available for you to attend. And most importantly, the workshops are filling up. There's not that many spaces left in many of the workshops. Some of them are already full. So if you haven't gone in and registered for your workshops, go do that today at azra.com. Plus, Azra's doing a special thing that you can participate in before you even get to the meeting. There's the call for videos. Uh, we have a special session led by Brian Harrington where you can actually send in videos of how you do certain procedures. And he's going to do an interactive session, a few different interactive sessions with people's videos as demonstrations. So go to the Azra website. You'll see a link in the show notes for this podcast for that uh for the directly to the website where you can submit your video, but go on there and be part of the community, submit how you do your blocks. So uh, beginning with the topic today, before we get too far into the topic, I want to uh, disclose something. I think Guy has to disclose something just so we're all staying above board. We're going to be talking about local anesthetic toxicity today. Um, I'm one of the lead developers for the Azra Last app. And that there is money that comes from that app. I don't make any of that money myself, but some of it, a portion of it goes to my department, a portion of it goes to Azra. And so just as a full disclosure, that's, uh, that's where those funds go to. Guy, you wanted to chime in with your disclosure as well? Uh, thanks, Raj. And thanks for the invitation too, Joe. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share our thoughts on this topic. And uh, second, your opinion on the uh, New York meeting, how great that's going to be actually Joe and I are participating in a joint session on local anesthetic toxicity there. It will be uh, run by Brian Sykes. But um, as far as the conflicts, I, I certainly don't make any money on the app either, but uh, I am uh, uh, an officer, shareholder, and paid consultant to Rescue Pharma, Inc. Okay, great. Thank you, Guy. Um, so what we're talking about, just to kind of set the stage here for our conversation, is that uh, local anesthetic systemic toxicity, what we call LAST, is an issue that's uh, 
pretty prominent in the minds of people that are delivering local anesthetic to patients. And we do nerve blocks. All of us do nerve blocks in some form or fashion or another. And thinking about the toxicity from these potent drugs is an important component of our skill set. And ASRA has been at the forefront of providing guidelines and recommendations and uh, treatment options for how to manage local anesthetic systemic toxicity. And if you don't know yet, in the February issue of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, there is an update to the practice advisory for management of local anesthetic systemic toxicity. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Joe and Guy were actively part of uh, this publication. And I thought that we thought that Eric and I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk to them about this latest update, what's different, and how uh, you guys can use this in your practice. So I'll start off here and uh, I'll shoot this off to Guy or to Joe. Um, Joe, t- tell us a little bit about some of the key features in the management algorithm that have changed since the last time, things that people were familiar with. What, what, what's important about these changes? Well, thanks, Raj. You're, you're right. Um, this is actually the third practice advisory that ASRA has done on this topic. Um, the first one was back in the early 2000s when the Levo enantiomers had been um, uh, introduced and when uh, Guy was just starting to talk about uh, using lipid as a as an antidote uh, for the toxic effects of local anesthetics, uh, we had the second advisory in 2010 as when it was published, and then uh, true to ASRA's commitment to update these uh, these applications or practice advisories as as the uh, knowledge um, goes forward. Uh, this uh, is the third iteration. The uh, main um, management algorithms that have been changed have been changed on the, on the basis of two things. Uh, first is the update of our knowledge, and uh, part of that uh, knowledge upgrade will be seen in the checklist, and part of it is seen in the supporting articles and the executive summary that you can read in regional anesthesia and pain medicine at your leisure. And then the second reason that we have updated the checklist in particular is because of feedback um, over the last uh, five years or so that has been garnered from simulation exercises, some of which we've done at Virginia Mason, uh, some have been done at the Mayo Clinic, uh, some have been done elsewhere, and we basically take that feedback to heart and change our algorithms uh, or uh, accordingly. So just to kind of quickly go over what are the, the new things uh, or at least um, emphasize things that you'll see in the checklist. The first is to address a really common problem that we've seen in simulation, which is to get people to recognize that when you have a last event in your patient and that patient actually um, becomes dysrhythmic or undergoes a cardiac arrest, the management of that is different than the typical ACLS algorithms for somebody with ischemic heart disease. And it's different in a, in a number of ways. The most important is that the, the drugs are different. So, for instance, uh, if your patient does arrest, um, instead of the typical ACLS milligram doses of epinephrine, we recommend that epinephrine be used, uh, if at all, in one microgram per kilogram or less and then escalate the doses as we need to. And the reason for that is you, you would otherwise have a, a large afterload um, against a, a very floppy heart. And this, um, this recommendation um, from epinephrine has been uh, supported by numerous uh, um, animal experiments. 
then the second thing is to avoid any drug which will just further depress the heart. So the calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, uh, uh, certainly don't give other local anesthetics for dysrhythmias. And then uh, vasopressin seems to be particularly problematic uh, because in the animal models, all of those animals die and they they tend to develop a pulmonary um, uh, edema type pattern uh, on their on their autopsy. So the second update is basically to once again alert people that if things are going poorly or even at the first sign of a major event, um, alert the nearest cardiopulmonary bypass team. These resuscitations can be prolonged and not everybody will respond to, uh, to standard treatment, including lipid emulsion. And uh, one way to buy time then for those drugs to get out of the heart is to place them on cardiopulmonary bypass. The biggest thing that Guy and I think we have done to change this, and this is really um, um, from feedback from users and from simulation, is to really simplify the dosing algorithms for lipid emulsion. We think that it really is is not particularly important that the volumes you give uh, are precise or that the flows that they're delivered um, through either a, a mechanical pump or just through a roller device on your IV tubing. We don't think those rates are crucial, and it doesn't really matter to a certain extent whether you start with a bolus or start with an infusion. The point is to get the lipid in there. So the big change that we've made is, in essence, to give a single dose. Uh, if your patient is seven, 70 kilograms or greater, that you simply um, bolus them with 100 milligrams of 20% uh, lipid emulsion um, pretty rapidly over two to three minutes. And then if you start an infusion, 200 to 250 milliliters uh, over the next 15 to 20 minutes is just fine. The only time where we really specify a specific weight um, is in those patients uh, less than 70 kilos. And this is the same recommendation that we've given in previous uh, iterations, which is one and a half milliliters per kilogram, um, and then a lipid emulsion infusion, which is based on about um, 0.25 milliliters per kilogram per minute of ideal body weight. And then if a patient continues to be unstable, you re-bolus at those same doses um, uh, up to twice and double the rate of infusion. We've made specific mention that that sometimes people get confused and say, oh, this it can't possibly be this much lipid. In fact, it is this much lipid, and sometimes in a longer resuscitation, it may be up to um, a full liter of lipid emulsion. So we've made those suggestions in to let people know that the volumes are, are fairly large. Um, we have also given a updated uh, maximum dose of lipid as 20 milliliters per kilogram. Uh, that's based on some new uh, FDA recommendations. And then the final part of this is that we've made specific recommendations for monitoring of these patients. If you've got somebody who's had just a, a CNS event that was very limited, like they seize and stop seizing, um, we think that they need to be monitored for at least two hours, and you can make the clinical decision whether you wish to proceed with the operation if they've been stable. And then if it's a cardiovascular event, that we recommend you keep those patients at least four to six hours of monitoring before you would release them to a non-monitored environment. So that's a, a very long um perhaps longer than you wanted, but uh, those are the main questions uh, or main changes uh, kind of in, in that nutshell that we've made. Can I make a couple of uh, addendums to that? Sure, go ahead. Just to clarify, uh, 
Joe, I think you mentioned um, uh, the initial bolus of 100 milligrams per mil, but that's 100 mils. I'm sorry, even I missed oh, it. It's 100 thank you for picking that bolus, up. Not 100 milligram bolus. I've made that mistake several times talking to people, so I <laughs> and I just did, too, so, and I definitely know better. Uh, the uh, the upper limit is 12 mils per kilogram, not 20 mils per kilogram. And oh, and I'm sorry, I thought I said 12, but I I may have mumbled. <laughs> it's okay, and. Uh, then the uh, although the order of whether you get the whether you start with the bolus or start with the infusion, the bolus should go in fairly quickly. Whether it's uh, by which I mean shortly after making uh, a tentative diagnosis of blast, the bolus shouldn't be delayed too long. And you can take a couple of minutes to get it in once you start. You don't want to get it in too quickly. Probably you know two three minutes for the hundred mils makes sense, but. Uh, uh, you you can delay the infusion to give the bolus. You can delay the bolus to give the infusion, at least start the infusion, but none, neither of them should be delayed very much. Yeah, this is Eric. Um, Guy That guy and Joe both, that was a lot of really good information for anybody listening who who uh, wasn't able to take notes and get every single thing. You can always go to azra.com. The updated uh, checklist is up there. And in fact, I just printed a couple earlier and uh, put them up in the walls in our block rooms earlier today. So that was a good Good timing for that. Um, Guy, for you, I wanted to ask you um, if you could just give us kind of a, a brief summary of what additional knowledge we have about the mechanism of how uh, the, the intralipid works, um, especially as it relates to additional knowledge that maybe we didn't have uh, since the last update. Anything you can uh, well, give us in that regard? So, uh, you know, the, I've been working on this literally for 20 years, and I can say that we've uh, really finally uh, established the mechanisms, we think we have a really good handle on the mechanisms, and I'm going to give equal credit to Michael Fetty Place, who is a graduate student in my laboratory for the last five years. He's now a uh, resident in anesthesia at MGH, and uh, he and I, you know, I've worked on this for 20 years, he for the last five years of that, and made contributions I would consider equal to mine. And basically, we can say that uh, with pretty much, pretty solid certainty that the main effect of the lipid is accelerating the redistribution of the local anesthetic. And this is a result both of a partitioning effect, which we were able to confirm, and that's what used to be referred to in the old days as lipid sink, and the, um, or sponging effect, if you will, or extraction, if you will, and an inotropic effect, which increases cardiac output and blood flow through uh, key affected target organs. So the net result of that is that you have an accelerated flow of lipid and blood, reducing the concentration of the uh, offending drug, in this case, local anesthetics, at targets of toxicity. And then those drugs are shuttled by the lipid to organs such as the liver and muscle where they can't do much harm. And so they're metabolized in the liver. And of course, the skeletal muscle is a pretty large reservoir. So that has been identified as a mechanism in a number of different laboratories, not just ours, uh, and a number of different models. So we're pretty certain that this, and very confident that this is the main effect. Another effect that we consider nearly as important is the post-conditioning effect. And this is something that Mark Vandeveld looked at, you know, 25 years ago um, when he was doing his PhD, but even recently out of Mansouri at Bali's lab, it's been confirmed by a number of people, uh, theirs primarily, that uh, infusing the lipid emulsion 
attenuates or reduces the injury caused by ischemia reperfusion. So that after you reestablish flow to the heart after cardiac arrest, for instance, the injury to the heart is much diminished if there's a low concentration of lipid around. And so that's those are the really the main effects, and we are pretty confident of those currently. There are a number of other minor effects, like a sig- insulinergic signaling is improved. There's a, probably a minor metabolic effect, but those are the main ones. So we have, um, you know, since the 2010 version of these uh, this checklist came out, we've got a lot of years of experience um, with with this uh, algorithm that we've had. Um, and you've had case reports coming in through Azra or through Lipid Rescue, dot uh, org, but has the new management strategy been tested in simulation? Do we have any new information about management of the patients in this way? Or, how, I mean, how do we know that this is the better way to go? And are you referring to the to the ordering of the checklist or actually uh, changes to treatment per se? Well, a little bit of both. Um, so, I mean, I know that the ordering of the checklist is sort of uh, moves the lipid emulsion higher up in the management process, and then also the dosing strategy of simplifying the dosing. Have you guys tried this out in simula- simulation, or is this just based on case reports that people are feeding back to you? So, um, we in previous simulations looked at the flow of the the actual um, recommendations themselves, and uh, uh, including some work that was done at Vanderbilt, um, showed that. Um, if you follow the checklist, um, you're more likely to get the steps correct and not miss improper dosing. And if you have a reader of that checklist, you're, you improve those odds even better. Um, this new checklist, which was just released uh, this week, um, will undergo a multi-institutional simulation that will begin this summer with the new CA1 class at those institutions. And then as far as uh, changes specifically to uh, the pharmacologic management, um, I, if I understand your question correct, uh, I think those are going to be mainly um, studies that, that are animal studies, and I'll defer to Guy to talk about that. You know, uh, before we get too far afield, uh, I'd like to mention the contribution of a CRNA at the, in the Mayo system uh, named Bettina Thompson. She actually contacted uh, uh, Joe and I oh, maybe a year and a half ago, with concerns about the complexity of the uh, recommendations at that time. And we really took that to heart and used her input, among many others, but predominantly her input on how best to simplify it. And th- I'm going to give her uh, considerable credit for inspiring us to uh, simplify things the way we have. So it was it was uh, really from people in the field, you know, boots on the ground, who wanted that done, and we hope we took care of that. As far as the simulations, I'll mention that uh, Kyle Harrison and I have run uh, simulations on a more, uh, on a less formal basis at the ASRA meetings for the last, I don't know, five or six years, and it's very, very interesting to see how uh, people do in these in this kind of stressful situation. I will say that practice definitely improves. Uh, the work and probably having a reader is one of the most important things you can do. And I think you found that to be the case in, uh, in Vanderbilt, right, Raj, that having a reader is important. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, at the beginning of this, uh, conversation, I've been part of, uh, developing the Azure last app and my colleague in that work is, uh, Matt McAvoy here at Vanderbilt. And he's took the lead on the simulation studies on the reader, uh, concept, both in this, uh, this, 
uh, algorithm with ACLS, I mean, with LAST, but also with other ACLS situations and found that when there's a reader looking at a guideline or a checklist, that uh, the likelihood of skipping steps is greatly reduced. And we, when we designed the app, we actually designed it in the mindset that the reader would be looking at the app and that other clinicians would be actually providing the direct care to the patient so that the algorithms in the app uh, follow the checklist, but in a more uh, uh, interactive method instead of just a uh, flat sheet of paper. Both work effectively. Having a reader look at either one, we just wanted people to have more than one way of accessing this information. If they didn't have a printed version near them, they could look it up online on azure.com really quickly or lipidrescue.org. Or if they happen to have it on their phone um, that's on their, in their pocket, they can pull that out at any moment as well. Um, you know, we are uh, actively updating the app. I just actually sent the guy and Joe the uh, current version of the app that f- fits this checklist. Hopefully that'll be out in the next couple of weeks um, and be pushed out to everybody who already owns the app for free as a free update. And then um, if anybody else wants to get it, it'll be available as the new version um, if they purchase it on the app store. Uh, unfortunately, we never made this for Android. It's still only for iOS. The some of the programming limitations for Android made making it for Android a little bit more complicated. You know, I'd like to throw out another comment, if you don't mind, um, especially in the days of ultrasound guidance and uh, documentation by Michael Barrington, among others, that this is a, a, a very effective way at reducing the frequency of last incidents. I just wanted to point out that uh, BLAST is still very important in today, regardless of the presence of ultrasound guidance. And there are a number of reasons for this. So, you know, we're having this conversation for a reason. And, uh, of course, first and foremost is patient safety. But I'll I'll also point out to the the effect on um, just the physicians involved, because this is one one of those iatrogenic scenarios where we can't really pass the buck. When something happens, that syringe is in our hand or in the surgeon's hand with us supervising them. So um, even though this is considered a rare event, and will in part because it's considered a rare event and people tend to undervalue the importance of rare events until it happens to them, I think that though we have fairly, we believe fairly good numbers on the incidents, I'm concerned that that sort of conventional number of one in a thousand peripheral nerve blocks may actually be a, a little bit low. And the reason for that is that Many of these events are just never reported, and they're not going to be picked up on um, uh, uh, administrative databases or in registries. They just never get reported. I know, for example, in my own institution, we've had a couple of episodes in the last few months, and nobody ever made an effort to record those or report them. So uh, this is a problem that, although it's rare, is not going to go away because you always have possibility of a pro- of an error in the system or the physician, you can have patient comorbidities that increase the risk. And of course, uh, just random events can make it occur when you least expect it. So it's something you really need to be aware of, uh, especially since um, there's, you know, we have a better handle now on how to address the problem when it occurs. One more plug before Eric does his question, because he's got one, is that um, if you happen to use our app, and this is a self-promotional plug here, if you happen to use the app, we actually built it so that all the events that you check in the app can produce a PDF at the end, so that if you need it for your own documentation, or with one button push, you could send it to Guy, who keeps track of this as a registry, 
um, so that he can kind of take a look at it and see how people are doing and maybe reach out to you with a request for more information. Um, yes. That's a quick and easy way. If you're using the app, all the data is already being inputted along the way and you can just push a button and send it to them. So just another plug for using, uh, you know, an electronic uh, decision support tool for this situation. Go ahead, Eric. Sorry about the interruption. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, I didn't know that that app actually was able to do that. So that's a really fantastic feature. And that's a great point from Guy. You know, you really can't let your guard down. You kind of get full security because we've made um, blocks relatively uh, safe with ultrasound. But they're always there's still is always going to be um, local anesthetic toxicity, nerve injury and these other issues that we absolutely have to be uh, vigilant about. Um, my question is, is a little bit uh, different, but uh, I, I know that in a lot of these cases, bupivacaine is the culprit and certainly is um, the, the biggest culprit. But I know that there have been case reports involving other local anesthetics, uh, ropivacaine, for example. I was wondering if either of you guys has any uh, information on whether um, have, have the case reports and, and the reports in general of, of other local anesthetics besides bupivacaine um, either increased or decreased. It seems like just from, from kind of casual conversation and through Twitter and so forth that I've gotten the idea that uh, ropivacaine is being used a lot more for potentially less cardiac toxicity, but I wanted to see if you guys had any information on the, on where that kind of stands now. I guess, uh, Joe, do you want to answer first? Yeah, I can, I can start. And I, I think it, um, I think one of the really uh, cool things from a from kind of the nerdy standpoint of this last um, uh, update that we did is that we really took pains to try to see what we could learn uh, in modern day incidents, and we we looked at that from a variety of settings, from registries, case reports, big databases, and everything else. And the results are are somewhat um, uh, mixed and and a little bit sobering. And there is a suggestion that the overall incidence of last that's being reported from registries and big institutions may in fact be going down a little bit, but the billing databases and the uh, those sorts of databases suggested in the community, in fact, uh, that may not be the case, that uh, the, the incidence may not be going up, but it's certainly not going down. One of the um, spinoffs of that that is pertinent to your question is um, what local anesthetics are being involved. And, and similar to what we found in 2010 is that, importantly, all local anesthetics involved are, are involved. And the um, bupivacaine, yes, uh, but ropivacaine in, in almost the same proportions. And I think one of the really interesting things is that in, in the Barrington uh, Australian studies, Actually, they had a fair amount of last using lidocaine, which is, you know, purportedly um, or, or truly is the less toxic of those drugs. And one of the, the thoughts that you can bring from his data is that, in fact, people may let down their guard and uh, use a little bit higher volumes and everything with lidocaine because they think it's safer. And um, <clears throat> I'll give you my bias, which I think I will affirm is that we really think that if you get the kind of potential volumes intravascularly or from systemic uptake from the tissues with either bupivacaine or ropivacaine, those patients are going to be in a very serious uh, medical situation. And at that point, although 
resuscitation from bupivacaine may be a little bit easier in animal models. It's not that greatly different. You also have to realize that, that ropivacaine is a less potent drug than bupivacaine. And sometimes people unconsciously um, deal with that by giving larger volumes or giving higher concentrations. So we want to really emphasize the point that you can't let your guard down either way. And that at least it's my personal belief is that Yes, there are animal studies, but in the real clinical world of a, of a major last event, there's probably no greater safety with bupivacaine than with ropivacaine. And in fact, even lidocaine can be, can be a culprit. So basically, Joe and I are of a mind here. I think that the, and this is a little heretical, but I think that the difference in toxicity purported for ropivacaine and bupivacaine is entirely related to the difference in potency so that in equal potent doses, they're essentially equally toxic. And unfortunately, I've had uh, to read cases of fatal ropivacaine last as well in the uh, pre-lipid era anyway. So uh, when they occur, they can be pretty catastrophic just to, and to the same degree as uh, bupivacaine. So from my standpoint, they're effectively the same drug. And I know that the, uh, the, Pharmaceuticals don't like me saying that, but I think it's the same. I don't think you're really purchasing very much difference in safety. And um, uh, as far as the lidocaine is concerned, uh, you know, there's a wide variety of uh, sensitivities to local anesthetics. And some people are very sensitive to any local anesthetic up to and including lidocaine. And uh, later, if we have a minute, I'll describe a couple of cases, one of which was uh, that we're writing up currently involves a PEA asystole following lidocaine toxicity. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, and I'll give and, my uh, I'll give my own personal experience with uh, mepivacaine. We were doing a block for somebody, and it was a bilateral foot surgery. And um, what's interesting about the shorter acting, quote unquote, safer local anesthetics is they typically come in higher concentrations per volume, as far as what we use typically, and we just weren't paying attention. We were paying attention to the volume and not the overall dose. And I think we quickly realized after we had already had a neurologic, luckily not a cardiovascular, but a neurologic toxicity event that, uh, and looked back at how much we had given, we probably gave twice as much as we probably should have. Um, and it was, you know, for someone like me who does this all the time, I couldn't believe that I, I miscalculated that dose, but it's when you use something that you're not, you're not used to and you're working with different concentrations, um, you know, that, that gets into a, uh, an issue that at least you should be paying attention to more. But I think, uh, the vigilance required for all local anesthetics is probably really important. One question I did have asked for, uh, do want to ask about this new, uh, practice advisory is that there's this mention of a last rescue kit. That's kind of a new term that you guys have used. Um, what, is there something special in that, especially as people are working on how to be prepared for this kind of a rare event? Uh, it sounds like you guys are leaning towards the MH kit model um, for last. And uh, can you give a little description of why you recommended this setup and uh, how people should implement that? Sure. And, and you know, we, we basically, um, one of the updates to the checklist on the what we call the back page, which has a lot more detail is we actually give kind of a description how to set up the uh, the rescue kit. And the, the point that we wanted to 
to really make is it's really simple. It's really cheap. And, uh, you know, anyone who's using local anesthetics on a routine basis should have one. And in essence, what it contains is uh, it's just, you know, a box or a bag or whatever you want. And in that, you should have up to um, a liter of lipid emulsion, 20%. It doesn't matter whether it's in a liter bag or four or 250 milliliter bags. Um, you need some syringes and needles to draw it up. Uh, you need some standard IV tubing to um, to put your infusion through. And uh, we suggest you have a copy of the checklist in there. And that's really all there is. And, um, you know, lipid emulsion is, uh, is very common as part of... Um, uh, nutritional um, issues or uses in your hospital. Um, it's really, it's probably not pennies, but it's a few dollars per bag. They have about a six-month shelf life. So we think anybody can put together this kit on their own. Uh, it doesn't have to be elaborate at all. Guy, any uh, any thoughts on that from uh, from your perspective? Uh, I, I agree with Joe. The only thing that I'll add, and I really in the, for the sake of transparency more than anything, is that you know, at the outset, I mentioned my conflict, and essentially what I'm trying to do is get FDA approval for a lipid rescue kit. So uh, so I'm on a new learning curve in terms of uh, regulatory <laughs> hurdles, and uh, so it's an interesting experience for me. But basically, the goal would be to have a more formal type kit so that people don't have to um, rely on putting it together at the, ahead of time or trying to figure out how to use it at the last minute under duress. And from a, the goal or hope would be that it, in obtaining FDA approval that we'll be able to get a really good handle on uh, efficacy from post-marketing surveillance and uh, make it simpler and easier to use for people, you know, in terms of having instructions and uh, 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 pre-filled syringes perhaps. So uh, that's really what we're trying to do right now. Um, I did have one question uh, for, I guess, uh, maybe for, for uh, Guy and Joe both. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of uh, in terms of the source and cause of these events, I mean, of course, we're anesthesiologists. We're thinking about blocks and, and in our mind, everything's from blocks. But just to get a kind of a broader perspective from the cases that you've reviewed, um, I don't know if you can give me an exact percentage, but is it a small percentage or sort of a, a mix in terms of whether these are coming from peripheral nerve blocks or uh, surgical infiltration or from other sources? Um, I guess, uh, Joe, if you want to take that first. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the quick answer is it's, um, it, it runs the gamut. Um, we find that I think about... Uh, um, and Guy, if I've got the numbers wrong, correct me, but I think about 20% of from the most recent series of case reports um, from 2014 through the um, middle of 17, um, about 20% of them were occurring in the non-operating room, non-induction room setting. Um, a fair number of those are involving non-anesthesiologists, uh, surgeons, or emergency room physicians. Um, and... Uh, I, basically, what we're seeing is um, is this kind of um, this can this can occur anywhere, and um, I'm not sure if that fully answers your question, but maybe Guy can add to that. You know, I think it's a really good point, Joe. In a way, we're sort of uh, uh, preaching to the choir. This podcast will largely reach people who know a lot of what we're saying, so we're kind of tweaking things a little bit. 
in terms of an update. But for many of our colleagues, the whole concept of last is entirely new to them. They are not familiar with it. They wouldn't know how to recognize it. And by conflating their own personal experience with statistical significance, they'll reflect, well, I've never seen it in my practice. And after all, I've done a couple of hundred of these procedures without a problem. So what's the what's the deal? Why are you worried? And uh, it's up to us to really educate our surgical colleagues that uh, this is something they need to be aware of. Because uh, uh, as Joe pointed out, many of these events occur outside of our purview. And the problem there is that the outcome's likely to be a lot worse because they may have absolutely no idea what to do, not prepared at all to cope with a situation. And uh, unfortunately, there are a fair number of instances of this, even in the um, lay press, of uh, events occurring in uh, outpatient surgery centers or in these plastic surgery centers. And uh, patients really were uh, done a disservice by being cared for by a team that really had the least, not the least bit idea of what to do. Yeah. And just to, just to kind of add one real quick point to what you're saying, Guy, I mean, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. I always um, get a little bit nervous. And I don't know if you guys have ever had this kind of feeling too, but I think it's maybe a difference in training, but the, the surgeons I work with, even some of the best ones, there's generally a total absence of aspiration. And, and although that's not a guarantee by any means, um, being near a lot of blood vessels and not aspirating and, and kind of blindly injecting um, certainly can can get my heart racing a little bit. Right, right, exactly. And your patients too sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Absolutely. Hey, speaking of which, can I take one second to just Please. mention that, um, and I know maybe Joe is going to talk about this already, but I just wanted to point out that one of the other things that we've identified recently as a uh, important comorbidity that increases the likelihood of an event related to local anesthetics is uh, small patient size. And I just bring this up as a way of segueing into how we can reduce the incidence of last events because recognizing comorbidities that put the patients at risk can really help out. And I think that uh, uh, being heightened, having heightened awareness in these situations and maybe titrating the dose of drugs down a little bit is a, for them is, makes sense. And we already knew that patients with coronary artery disease or some pre-existing cardiac uh, problem like conduction defects or low output states were problems. I think you can look view frailty as a, or extremes of age as another problem. And there's some rare metabolic conditions that can increase the sensitivity to last. But Michael Barrington has recently shown, and we have experimental data to support an explanation for why patients with sarcopenia just small size or very small muscle mass are at increased risk. And it basically boils down to the local anesthetic not really having anywhere to go after you inject it. So um, identifying patients at increased risk may make it safer for them and for us as well. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I, I've learned a lot. And, you know, for the sake of time, we try to keep these podcasts under half an hour. And I think we could all go for another half hour right now. So I'm going to wrap things up a little bit just so... Um, uh, people can get a good sense of what we talked about, but I do want to give some homework assignments to all our listeners. First, a homework assignment 
is that every time a surgeon asks you what dose of local anesthetic they can give, that's that's an opportunity to talk to them about uh, lipid emulsion and local anesthetic uh, toxicity because I've had many a conversation in the operating room when that dose question comes up. And if uh, they don't know what dose to give, they probably don't know what last is and they probably don't know how to deal with it. So I, I use that as my opportunity to have a little mini lecture in the operating room. The second thing yeah. is is uh, go to uh, regional anesthesia and pain medicine or to azra.com under the uh, practice advisories and guidelines tab and go find the latest edition of this practice advisory. The people you've been listening to have been working really hard to give you good information and collect the best data. Go read it. Go look at it. Get the checklist. Post it up in your work areas and communicate this to your colleagues. Not everybody is going to be uh, up to date on this, but the information is incredibly useful. Third point is make a uh, last rescue kit. Uh, I know Guy's working on his product, but you can put together your own pretty quickly too. Um, there's no excuse to not have one uh, nearby whenever you're doing any kind of local anesthetic work. And then the last thing is go to azra.com. Don't forget the meeting's coming up in April. The World Congress is going to be an amazing meeting. Don't forget about that. That is, uh, we want to see people from the United States. We want to see people from all over the world. And we want all of you guys participating in this fantastic meeting. You can meet Guy and Joe in person. You can meet me and Eric in person. <laughs> what a cool thing to be able to do. Go meet these people in person. I got to know these guys many years ago, and I feel like it's a privilege to have met them in person and be able to talk to them as friends now. Um, so uh, go check this out. Uh, be on social media if you're, if you're a social media type person. I'm going to put everybody's social media links in the show notes here so you can find us on social media and communicate there. Hashtag World 18 is the hashtag for the World Congress meeting. There's going to be a lot of information coming through that stream on the hashtag. So check that as well. Uh, Guy, Joe, I want to thank you guys again for joining us. This was fantastic. I know it's hard with everybody's schedules to get in the same place at the same time. And I really appreciate you guys taking time to do this. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. All right. Everybody take care. Bye. Take care. Good day.